welcome to the Education Innovators Podcast. I'm Eric Byron, and it's an honor to host this show where we get to hear from talented educators who are willing to share their stories of the incredible things they are doing in learning environments all over the world. Came to New York, and I was 22 years old, and I started teaching in a um, you know high complexity, low income school in, in the Bronx. I was the only biology teacher in in New York City. The first exam that students take is living environment, and so you know thrown into the fire. That was Amanda Bickerstaff, followed by just a taste of Avenged Sevenfold Afterlife. It just felt like the right song for today's episode, doing it the hardest possible way. From biology teacher in the Bronx to EdTech executive, Amanda Bickerstaff grew up in Georgia and has traveled the world, experiencing it both personally and professionally. In part one of this two-part conversation with Amanda, We're going to hear her story in her own words and find out how she came to launch her new business, AI for Education. For all of you innovators out there, keep an eye on this one. She is going to do big things. Today, I have a special guest with me. This is Amanda Bickerstaff. Amanda's the founder and CEO of an AI for Education, a former high school biology teacher and ed tech executive with over 20 years of experience in the education sector. She has a deep understanding of the challenges and opportunities that AI can offer. She's a frequent consultant, speaker, and writer on the topic of AI in education, leading workshops and professional learning across both K-12 and higher ed. Amanda's committed to helping schools and teachers maximize their potential through the ethical and equitable adoption of AI. I'm so excited to have you on the show. Of course, we talk about innovation, and obviously AI is you know, in everybody's lips these days talking about uh, the impact of generative AI in, in education. But before we get to the, the meat of that, I want to talk about this transition. I'm always really curious about people's transitions in their careers. So you went from biology teacher to ed tech executive. How, how did this come about? Well, it's very nice to be here. Thank you for joining me across the world. Um, I so it's actually quite funny. I wanted to be a doctor, actually. I had this almost pathological need to like help people. Like it's like my huge, like, you know, part of my life. It's my main motivator. And so I went to college at Emory in Atlanta, which is a good science school. I'm from Georgia and ended up having like getting an autoimmune disease when I was 20. Um, so I have a form of arthritis, which became very clear because there's a lot of fatigue. That's part of this disease that there was no way I was going to go through like medical school and then be able to do overnights and these types of things. And so I had to make a a shift in that thinking pretty quickly. Um, And so uh, what can I do that would help people in a way that was deep and focused? And I thought, okay, well, I've always enjoyed teaching. I was a tutor and, you know, was someone that helped out a lot, um, people around me. And so I became, I remember this very distinctly. I applied to the teaching fellows very late in New York city. Like, and I will never forget this. I, you know, wore my little heels, which were very, you know, terrible to do if you're coming in on the bus from New Jersey, I looking for the place that I'm going to have my interview. I slip on someone's like, someone has thrown up 
don't fall, but I do hear someone screaming at me, watch where you're going. Uh, um, too late. So he, he wasn't even near me, but that was my anecdote for New York City that from like across the way, he was mad at me for, for slipping. Uh, but had my, you know, had my interview and I was very honest <laughs> during the interview process that, you know, with my health, it was something in which I really couldn't commit to a full career in the classroom because we all know how difficult it is to balance the needs of students, the needs of the the work. I mean, you work, I was working like 80 hour weeks, but a lot of it was very um, taxing. And so I had committed to three years as a fellow, very honestly, in my interview process. And Luckily, they they took a chance on me and came to New York. And I was 22 years old, and I started teaching in a um, you know a high complexity, low income school in in the Bronx. I was the only biology teacher in in New York City. The first exam that students take is living environment, and so you know thrown into the fire. Did that for three years. It's it was the most challenging job I had until this last job where I was a CEO of an ed tech company in a new country. So I was in Australia. So like we'll talk about We're like talk you about know, that. Yeah, <laughs> the juxtaposition between those two extremes. But yeah, so I, 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 you know, when I came out of the classroom, I wanted to still stay in education, but I was still also kind of interested in, in uh, medicine as well, but thinking about it differently. But I decided I wanted to get a PhD and I had like three weeks to apply. And I'm like, I'm just going to apply the only thing available. And the only thing available was this graduate center, Kenya Graduate Center Urban Education Program. And I ended up getting in. And, you know, I come from a, a background where, like, there are not PhDs, my, you know, like, you know, we're in, it's, I just thought if you get in, you go. And so I did. And that really was the thing. Like, I went, I started working. I didn't want to take loans. So I, like, it was in New York City. And I was, like, doing all this part-time work and seeing all the different lenses of, of education from building a STEM prep, teacher preparation program to evaluating after-school programs, doing curriculum and content. Uh, and so did that. And then became pretty clear about four years in that I really liked working. I liked building. I was less interested in academ- academia I and, and I wanted to do that. So I left the PhD program. Sorry, family. <laughs> I'm still upset about that, but it was the right move for me. And then what ended up happening is I started my career kind of late. I was a teacher and then I was a PhD student. And so, but luckily I, you know, I think, you know, for- I'm sorry, what do you that- define as late? <laughs> like uh like 29 <laughs> well I mean like it was my first job that was like a corporate job at 29 like you know and so everyone else had kind of already started and like was you know had a, a pathway and and so for me I kind of moved very very fast so I moved from like that moment of being like an assistant manager of a professional learning company to a CEO in like eight years yeah. Uh, and so I had this crazy background. If you look at my LinkedIn, I've done a lot of different stuff. But you've you know, been a lot of places. I have. So I DC, very nomadic. <laughs> right, uh, Seattle, then Melbourne. Now back yep. in New York again. It's been crazy. You're you're young, and you've done a lot of things. So it's, now, I mean, yeah. I'm living in Hong Kong, right? So I can relate to the uh, moving around thing a little bit. It's it's good to move around and experience new things and new cultures and so it would, actually a couple of things I, I thought of as you were telling your story. First of all, I thought of my my own brother who was actually pre med at Johns Hopkins and then ended up not going to med school. I want to poke a little bit at this this role in Melbourne. So just looking at your resume was kind of interesting because it looks like you worked for Pivot, right? It's, it's called Pivot Professional Learning, right? Um, you worked yes. for them from New York, 
and then moved to Melbourne to be their CEO. Yeah. Tell me that um, story. I don't have, like, I, I joke if I ever have a TED Talk, it's going to be do it the hardest possible way. Like, I have not taken a straight line once in my life, whether that's, you know, worth work or personal life. And so I had moved back to New York and I was like, I want to be in New York. I love New York. It's where my friends are. I love, like, I think of the DOE as like my DOE. Like, it's quite funny. We're doing work now. And my co-founder is always like, which DOE are you talking about? But in my mind, it's always going to be New York City. And so came back to New York and had started working at a Y Combinator backed startup that was in a really kind of difficult transitionary moment. And I was doing crazy stuff. I actually ended up in, you know, in uh, China for a week doing like, like with no warning to do like course development, all kinds of stuff. But I realized that it wasn't quite a right fit. And so we had this networking opportunity that was at the Australian consulate around ed tech. And I met Rose Els Mitchell, who has been at HMH, and she's the, the head of education at Scholastic now. And we talked for like 10 to 15 minutes. And I was talking about like wanting to kind of get back into the world of professional learning and supporting teachers. And she's like, oh, have you met my friend Belinda? And so Belinda was the found one of the founders of Pivot, who was there literally for like the night and they had just met. And so we had a 15 minute conversation and she went on vacation and I went back to work and that was in April. And by uh, like a couple weeks later, they had offered me a role thinking about expanding in the U.S. And it became pretty like I went to Australia for the first time in June of 2019. And they have, you know, a great product and product market fit. But it was like a true kind of founder journey. Like no one was full time. There was no structure. And I've been a COO. I, like, I can't help but want to put things kind of in a place that's scalable and that works and people are happy. And so I kind of naturally was started to, they never had a weekly. And I was like, let's, let's do a weekly. And we started Slack and we had all these community building things. And I went back again in September and was offered the CEO position if I moved. And so for me, like, Having, you know, I, I saw that the CEO position was on my path. Like I had been building stuff for years for other people. And it was something in which I really wanted the opportunity to build a culture, to build a ground up, like kind of really supportive, strong uh, tool for classrooms. And so this was my opportunity. So I moved to Australia and, you know, November 2019, what could go wrong? I mean, who knows? <laughs> like, let's go. I'm going to travel the world. I'm going to yeah. like... We're going to grow by 2x. And uh, yeah, then I end up in Melbourne, which was the most lockdown place in the world, even more than China. So we spent almost a full year in lockdown and it became extremely difficult to run a company. I'll bet. So talk to me a little bit about the product there. What does Pivot do? The core product when I started was a student perception survey on teaching. So we, you know, the one number one indicator of six, like of student success is teacher quality. And so this is consistent and it's it's uh, widely known and understood. And there are not a lot of really good ways to measure that, but students have been shown to be pretty good at measuring that, um, especially if they're given the voice and agency to do that. So we have a, we had a survey that could be customized, but had a set of like tools, like questions in and around the, the standards in Australia, but things like uh, around assessment, around connection, around voice, you know, all like around even like instructional time, classroom management. And students did that twice a year. And then teachers got feedback that was related directly to professional development. Um, so that's what we started with. And then when COVID happened, uh, as you probably can recognize, a student perception survey on teaching is not 
something that everyone likes. Uh, teachers can be maybe not as open or just really stressful. And so if you're trying to sell something that people don't like during a pandemic, it can be quite hard. So we actually, I would say first we leaned into the skill set that we have and specifically a skill set I have, which is research. And so we had this opportunity to partner with Education Perfect, which is a very large organization that has digital curriculum that's now become very popular around um, the APAC region and, and more places. And they wanted this like quick hit little research study. And I, you know, I was locked into my apartment and I was like, okay, I have a weekend. So I built this very like robust 44 item, you know, the survey around the impact of COVID on teaching. And we incentivized it and I swear we put it out to the world without, oh, maybe we'll get 500 people. And I t- it's 30 minutes from my apartment to my, um, to, from my workplace to my apartment and I'm walking and I get home and I look at the number of people that have completed the survey, it's 750. So we had 4,000 people in three, day fr- three days from Australia, New Zealand and Southeast Asia answer the survey. So it is the largest of its kind of a snapshot in April, 2020 that did everything from technology use to impact on teaching and, and uh, in the sense of how long people were using to even plan to perceptions of impact on students, on families, on communication. And through that, we, we worked really hard to get that into the world. So we actually closed the survey at the end of April and the paper, the first paper was out in the beginning of June. And so we were able to put into this world this like really tangible research-based evidence on what was happening so people could have a rich discussion and know what to do next. And so that was something in which, you know, we really, really thought was positive. And through that, we, you know, I spoke to parliament. We had 2,000 people join us in webinars in one week. We did another paper specifically around equity, we did a paper at the end of the year. And then we also saw that like well-being was a really big concern. Through through that, we actually created a brand new tool around well-being. So it was really a very fascinating road and something in which um was completely unexpected. <laughs> yeah. No, that's really, really cool. It also it makes me think about one of the startups I have. And we we actually focused around the, the whole company's premise was around questions. Right. And the importance of asking questions. Right. So you're talking about doing a survey. Right. But the the data you collect is only as good as the questions you ask. Right. And how you ask them. Otherwise, you get leading questions or whatever. and You get the answer you want. Right. Kind of Mm -hmm. thing. So so how did you go at that? You, You said you did this. You know, I mean, very fast in a matter of hours. Almost, you said you wrote this 40 question survey. Are you brilliant? I mean, you must be. Oh, um, no. Well, so the the um, survey, we did a lot of work around like the survey creation for students, including around developing additional questions. And the well-being survey, you know, it really was extraordinarily evidence-based. We, I, I did the cognitive testing with fourth graders. Like, you know, it is something that was super research-based. And we totally agree. The way that you structure a question, you have to be extremely cognizant of like leading, but not, like it can't be double barreled. It can't ask more than one thing. It has right. to be very specific and it needs to uh, even be framed in a way that, you know, we suggest statements is, is best, but even the scale needs to be correctly done. One of the reasons why you know, we I was able to pull together that big survey and with support, like, I mean, after the first draft, I, I you know, kind of opened up to everyone was just like a, a deep curiosity plus the experience that I've had as a researcher. Like I'd already been published and as part of a PhD program. And so I really leveraged that and used that. And it was 
we were really proud of them after actually like we were like maybe we would have changed two or three questions or like maybe we would yeah. have done not a three or something but it was really quite fascinating and then when we did when we used that to actually build the well-being survey we were able to build a well-being survey that worked across boys and girls it was worked for young people we had a k2 version that was statistically validated we were able to work across culture and we did a lot of that work by also providing students scenarios so if the question asked you about belonging or it asked you about can you be yourself at school it gave a scenario as if another student was experiencing that so that they were able to kind of level set an answer from a place of shared understanding instead of reading it with whatever lens they had they now read it through the lens of like you know this is something that has examples and now I can answer more effectively about my own experience. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. No, this is a, there's a whole kind of art and science to writing questions and well, and assessments is another part of that, right? Which is why let's say uh, my business partners and I were just kind of fascinated with the idea, this concept of, of questions. And of course it's also fundamental in my podcasting as well, right? Absolutely. If I don't ask good questions, I don't get good answers and my podcast is going to be boring. So yes, I do try to put quite a bit of thought in and uh, and we're actually working on uh, incorporating AI into the tool we're building that helps you write questions. I, I, I still want to dig deeper into, um, well, of course, what you're doing now, right? The AI in, in education. So you spent three years in Melbourne, right? About, okay. Um, got through COVID. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so, so then what happened? You sounds like you were having success there. Why come back to New York and, and launch a new business? Well, I mean, like going back to doing it the hardest possible way, um, you know, the business was extremely complicated even before COVID. And so I have the, the personality thing to like when COVID happened, you know, you put it all on your back. And so I did my absolute best and everyone did, but also I, I found that one of the only ways to really support the team in such a complex environment, especially since we were legitimately locked down like almost a full year that people were working with three kids and craziness and bad Wi-Fi because Australia has shocking Wi-Fi. What ended up happening, it was just got to a point where, especially when we launched a new tech tool, the, the well-being tool, we was part of a replatform at the beginning of 2022, is I started working 100-hour weeks without stopping for six months. I stopped sleeping. I, you know, was... I got COVID at the only event I ever did for like, we were out, we were allowed out, allowed out once for like yeah. a CEO thing for International Women's Day and literally got COVID that time. And it really got to a point where I wasn't prioritizing my health. And I was also not setting a good example for those that worked for me. And I believe very strongly in integrity of like mission, but also in leadership. And I got to a point where it was recognizable that I was, it was, it was not healthy. And so I deliberately, I was to a point of burnout in which the things that I loved, like being around people and complex problem solving and speaking in like these types of interactions were quite difficult for me. And I, I use that really as a really important thing to acknowledge and look at and reflect about. So I said, no, I left Australia and then I traveled the world for six months. So I uh, went back to the US for a bit, saw some family, and then I spent four months in, in Europe. And then I spent a month, uh, just over a month in Japan 
and I learned how to make pasta professionally in Florence for my birthday. And I learned how to kind of surf. I was really terrible. And I, you know, traveled and I saw and I met people. And then I came back to the US and, and it got to a point where I kind of, you know, what do you do? Okay, so I've, I've no safety net. I've no, you're nothing. I'm back in the US. It's been a couple of years. And so we kind of, I think, what we do is we like look at what we've been good at and I've been good at building other people's companies. So I joined a startup for a little bit of time. And then I went through like a two and a half month process for an ed tech CEO role and all these things. And at the same time, I think my, I knew deep down that it was time for me to, to build something that was something that I could really own. And like, I could, could do something that I was passionate about, but it would really be something in which it was my opportunity to be, an entrepreneur instead of an entrepreneur that's been helping build other people's businesses, but an entrepreneur that was building my own. Yeah. Good for you. (laughs) This conversation with Amanda Bickerstaff of AI for Education has been great. I'm learning a lot and thoroughly enjoying Amanda's story of entrepreneurship in ed tech. In part two, we're going to continue to deep dive into her new startup and how she's helping teachers become AI literate and to use the tools as their personal magic wands. If you're enjoying this podcast and learning stuff like me, please subscribe and share. We have more awesome guests lined up and amazing stories of innovation and education that you don't want to miss. Please reach out if you have comments or suggestions. I'm Eric Byron. Thanks for listening, and thanks to all those education innovators out there. You are making a difference.